Right now, Elon Musk's cherry red Tesla Roadster is floating through space on the way past Mars orbit to the asteroid belt, pumping David Bowie tunes after getting shot out of a SpaceX rocket. And if it weren't for this week's guest on What It Takes, this moment might not be possible. Nancy Fund is one of the most successful clean tech venture capitalists of all time. She's an early backer of Tesla and SpaceX and Pandora. Well, I don't actually know if the Bowie tunes on the Roadster were getting played over Pandora, but you get the point. Her fingerprints are all over this. Without the early support of her venture firm during the most difficult days, who knows if Musk would be shooting Teslas into space, inching closer to sending people to Mars. In this week's episode of What It Takes, a podcast from Powerhouse and Green Tech Media, we are talking with Nancy Fund about how she went from being an anthropology major in college to investing in some of the most important clean tech companies around. This conversation was recorded in Oakland, California at the Powerhouse headquarters. Powerhouse is the leading seed fund and co-working space for intelligent energy startups. As usual, my interchange co-host Shale Khan sets up the conversation, and Emily Kirsch, the CEO of Powerhouse, takes over for the interview. Before we get started, though, a quick word about our sponsor, FiveWorks. If you're looking to go beyond meter data to engage your customers on a deeper level and drive them toward desired outcomes, you're looking for FiveWorks. FiveWorks personalizes digital communication and drives customer behavior at scale by using behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning technology to help you market to a customer of one. Boy, that sounds like something that venture capitalists are really into these days, and certainly a lot of utilities. And that's how you deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. To see how FiveWorks can help your program succeed, visit fiveworks.com slash the interchange or follow the link on the podcast page. Now, on to the show. So venture capital is, in significant part, a game of entrepreneur spotting. The job of the venture investor is to seek out and identify amazing entrepreneurs who will build businesses that withstand the inevitable litany of challenges that are going to come their way. So for What It Takes, this event series where we interview entrepreneurs about their stories, being a successful venture investor and thus a successful entrepreneur spotter would probably be enough. Nancy Fund is that. But she's also an entrepreneur in her own right. Nancy started and helps lead DBL Partners, whose mission is to invest in companies that deliver both economic returns and social and environmental benefits. DBL, of course, stands for double bottom line. The first bottom line is achieving competitive venture capital returns. And the second bottom line is achieving social or environmental returns. And importantly, not sacrificing either on the other's account. Imagine the challenge of pitching potential limited partners on a fund predicated on the notion that doing good means doing well. They can't escape it either at DBL because it is literally in their name. In addition to that, within the clean tech sector in particular, Nancy has proven herself to be quite an adept entrepreneur spotter, and that's probably the understatement of the century. Among her many achievements in that regard, Nancy invested in Tesla in 2006 uh, and also then in SpaceX. She then followed the Elon Musk familial ties into Solar City in 2008, where she was an early investor. And if you really want to draw that path forward, Solar City then made its first off-grid developing world investment itself into a company called Off-Grid Electric, which DBL then led its Series C. But Nancy's successes don't just end with the Musk family and its extended branches, though that would be significant in and of itself. She also uh, discovered and backed one of our previous What It Takes guests, Dan Sugar, who, and she invested in both of his major successes at Powerlight and then at Next Tracker. And I could go on, and that's to say nothing of her successes outside of the energy sector, where her portfolio includes companies like Pandora. Beyond Nancy's professional achievements as an investor, um, I would just also add a personal note. One thing that I really admire about Nancy is that she is unabashedly outspoken about the issues that she deems to be important. It's why I think she embodies the idea of impact in investing as well as anybody else that I've ever met. She's passionate about the future of energy, future of the environment, the food system, and the general well-being of people. Nancy and I were both involved a little bit 
in drafting energy policy ideas for a certain presidential campaign that failed recently. And throughout that process, I found her to be uh, thoughtful, innovative, and incisive. And, you know, I, I hope that her ideas, which are currently gathering dusk on a shelf somewhere, <laughs> see the light of day in another administration. So whether it is as an investor, as an entrepreneur, or just as someone who lives what they believe, Nancy is a model that many of us, myself included, would love to emulate. So without further ado, let's hear her story. All right. From Powerhouse and Green Tech Media, welcome to What It Takes, a show about the founders of some of the biggest clean energy companies in the country and the stories behind the movements that they've built. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO here at Powerhouse. And on today's show, how an environmental and social activist uh, turned her passion into one of the most successful venture capital and impact investing funds in the country, if not the world. We're thrilled tonight to have Nancy Fund, founder and managing partner with us at What It Takes. So Nancy, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you, Emily and, and Powerhouse team for inviting me. It's a thrill to be here. And, and thank you so much for your kind intro, Sean. So Nancy, I have to start by asking what I'm sure you get all the time, which is with a name like Fund, do you feel like it was destiny to lead <laughs> a really successful fund? <laughs> What else could I do with a, with a name, name like Fund, which is really annoying to have to spend your whole life spelling your name. So at least there is some, some grace in, in the fact that it does define what I do. Yeah. So it is um, fun. Good. Um, well, let's start by learning a little bit about where you're from and what your family was like growing up. Sure. I um, I was born in Washington, uh, in Bethesda, outside of Washington D.C., uh, but moved when I was very young to the Boston area. I grew up, up grew up in West Newton, Massachusetts. Went to Newton North High School and uh, just really became um, very active from an early age. It was kind of the the era where a lot of uh, social issues were getting. Um, a lot of attention. I grew up, uh, I have four sisters and no brothers. So very early on, um, became aware that there was no sort of gender stereotyping in our house in terms of what chores, you know, and how many chores you were assigned. Uh, so which I also think helped me later on to, to, to not really think of, of activities as being gender uh, determined. Um, and just kind of had a normal uh, upbringing. Uh, my father was a patent attorney and an engineer and an inventor. Uh, invented all kinds of things that we built for him in the in the basement. Uh, and then my mother was a homemaker, but had um, worked for uh, Senator Truman during World War II. Worked for the Department of Agriculture during the war effort. And in fact, that's where they met. And early, any early memories from childhood that that stuck with you or feel like uh, things that shaped your career? Well, I would say uh, I, there's there's one image that, that sticks with me, which I'll describe in a minute. Um, in terms of how I ended up to do this double bottom line thing, I, I really, it sounds corny. And of course, I didn't plan it this way. I only looked at it uh, in retros retrospect. But I do think that I'm a hybrid of my mother and my father. My father was very, he was an entrepreneur himself. He dealt with entrepreneurs. He was super technical uh, and he liked to invent things. Whereas my mother um, worked in politics, worked for the League of Women Voters, was always, you know, leafleting about some cause or another. And so uh, and very engaged and, and very committed to that. So that's kind of what my job is now. And, and so that even though at the time I didn't realize it, it must have had an influence on me. And in terms of a, a memory, uh, because I was one of five daughters, age like from zero to 10, uh, I, my, one of my first most vivid me memories of my parents is, because uh, my mother had been a precinct uh, captain in the John F. Kennedy campaign uh, for president, and uh, they, they did outstandingly well, and so she and my father uh, went to the inaugural ball for for JFK, and you, you can think about having five kids. You, you you can barely get out of the house, let alone dress for an inaugural ball. Um, and that was that was a really special memory for me to see them so happy and, and getting 
getting all dressed up to, to go celebrate JFK's election. And so from that early childhood of politics and invention, um, tell us about your college days and what that looked like. Sure. Um, so I came west for, for college, and it was always a, a dream I had to, to come to California. And I became very involved in um, various social issues, just because that was sort of what I did in addition to, to academics. Um, and I uh, went to Stanford. Stanford had a, a, um, a program at the time where t students could teach courses um, on political and social issues. So I, I decided to do that. I taught a class on affirmative action um, for, for women, which uh, was pretty new at the time. I also became involved in um, student the Stanford PERG, which still exists today, the Public Interest Research Group, which are uh, student-led um, uh, research groups that look at various policy issues and try to change them for the better. And, and that was where I actually did my first energy transparency work in uh, as a, I think I was a senior. Uh, it was during the gas crisis uh, and everyone had to pay a lot of money for and wait in long, long lines to get gas in their cars because uh, there was a shortage. Um, and so we studied um, the gas stations that had signs out that you could drive by and see uh, versus those that didn't post the, the, the prices. And so uh, you might get gouged, but you didn't want to leave after waiting in line for two hours. So there was this uh, disparity between the two approaches. So we studied that, and sure enough, of course, the stations that posted their prices uh, were cheaper than the ones that gouged you after waiting for two hours and, and they told you it was you know three times what you thought it would be. Um, and so that was the... The, the study, the results, and we were, we were asked by the uh, head of the California Senate to, to testify on a bill that he wanted to introduce uh, that would make uh, gas price posting mandatory. And so we did that, and it passed. And of course, now you take it for granted because all gas prices are posted. And, um, but that, you know, that was an early success. It, it was uh, something that gave me confidence that... Um, policy could be used for for a good purpose and it and it also gave me I mean it foreshadowed something that I would do um, over and over in my career so the work you did as a student is why we have gas prices posted today <laughs> <That's> <laughs> well awesome. you know it takes a team but uh, we started it yeah and I mean I was I was just surprised one day that that uh, it was actually um, sadly it was um, George Moscone was the the who would become the mayor of San Francisco and, and be assassinated. But he was, before that, he was the head of the California Senate. And he was the one that just took an interest in it. I mean, it's, it's just a good story of how you, you can, with research and um, kind of uh, <coughs> tapping at something that people really care about, you can make a difference. And then tell us about the years after Stanford. What did you do next? Uh, so the years after Stanford, I... Um, I worked at Stanford Medical School as a research associate, writing a, helping to write a book about um, innovation in medicine and the risks and the benefits, and, and, and asking questions about when things go wrong, who should pay, who, how do you, how do you get the benefits of medical progress without, without the risks, and uh, say of um, DES daughters, for example, that were um, that because their mothers took a certain drug when they were pregnant, they ended up having a higher rate of, of, of cancer. And so we were, we were just trying to figure all of that out. Um, and so that was, that was when I did a lot of writing and research. I, I uh, also, at the same time, because I was doing research at the FDA for this book, um, I, that was when I worked for the Sierra Club. And so really the day after I graduated, I went to work in Washington, DC as an intern for the Sierra Club. I didn't get paid for that job. I did get paid for the Stanford job. So that's how I was able to, to make that work. Um, and really, the Sierra Club back then, the Alaska Wilderness Act was being debated and passed, the amendments to the Clean Water Act. I mean, some pretty major uh, historic legislation. Uh, I was just a junior team member, but it was a very heady environment. And, um, made me a lifelong member and, and fan. And then what did you do after the Sierra Club? 
Uh, so after those jobs, I, I continued to work in sort of toxic substance-related uh, health issues for the state of California. And then I just decided that I needed to understand. I knew the policy aspects of innovation and the not-for-profit side, but I wanted to learn the business side. So I went to business school. I went to the Yale School of Management, which at the time uh, still is, but back then was more differentiated, uh, really combined public sector and private sector into one curriculum. So that, that's I that really suited me. I thought that was what I wanted to do. And then from there, I heard you were going to join um, California government. Yes. But then something <laughs> happened. <laughs> yeah. The best laid plans. Um, yeah. I actually, uh, while a student, I wrote a um, study for um, Jerry Brown was, was governor for the first time in his, his last years. He created an organization which was so far ahead of his time. And even if it existed today, I'd still work for it. It was called the Office of Appropriate Technology. And it, and it was really uh, looking at solar and wind and energy efficiency and all of these that were incredibly embryonic at the time and trying to, to find a way to bring them in, uh, like he put, solar on some of the Sacramento state buildings, you know, years ahead of anyone else. And so he, at, I was asked to write a, a paper on the impact of biotechnology on the state of California, because that's what my thesis was and what that book project was at Stanford. And so I just got to go, I interviewed um, Linus Pauling and um, the uh, Oppenheimer, just a lot of famous scientists, Wendell uh, Barry, I, inter I interviewed for the ag implications, and that was that was a really great report. We actually predicted that the agricultural use of biotechnology would be controversial, whereas the medical would be less so because it was more controlled. And of course, we didn't know the term GMO at that time, but that's really what we predicted back in 1982. Um, so I was going to go work there when I graduated, but. Uh, a new governor had been elected and in the in the intervening year and the very first thing he did was abolish the office of appropriate technology he was a republican he was mm. very old school so I, I didn't have a job and uh there was a recession there was terrible but a few months later i went and found a job at intel where i worked for two years um which was a great i mean back then intel was sort of like google i mean it was a place where a, a so much was happening and there was so much innovation. And I ended up um, working for one of the co-founders of Intel, Bob Noyce, who uh, invented the integrated circuit. And I was a speechwriter for him. Did you get to interject your thoughts and views on the world in the speeches that you wrote for him? Absolutely. He was, uh, <laughs> that's why you always wonder, why would someone become a speechwriter? Well, it is, a, especially if the person you're writing for is very powerful. It's a great way to, to educate people on, on your views. <laughs> Do you feel like he changed his views because of what you wrote for him? Well, um, and sadly, he died very young, so he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> but he, I think he would say, I helped open his eyes to some of the social implications of, of the then embryonic uh, electronics and integrated circuit technology. And in fact, he, went, he and I went on to do some public policy together before there was such a, a job. Yeah. Yeah. And then from there, it sounds like you started to look for jobs in San Francisco. Tell us more about what led to that and what you found. Yeah, everyone always thinks I had this grand design to be a venture capitalist <laughs> in San Francisco, and nothing could be further from the truth. I, and to be honest with you, in college, I didn't know what a venture capitalist was. I was an anthropology man major. I, you just heard I went to work for the Sierra Club. Um, and so my path from Intel to San Francisco was really a personal one. It had had to do. I was um, I was got engaged. I was you know very happy to at the thought of, of uh, getting married. My husband was a practicing physician at the time in Albany, and so he really couldn't move. I mean, he had a bunch of patients, uh, and even back then, the commute between Berkeley and Santa Clara was horrific. I mean, I know it's all, I know we know how awful it is today, but it was even bad then. And so I just, and I had had an apartment in Palo Alto, but I thought, well, I'm getting married. I should, we should really not do that. So I said, well, I'm going to find a job in San Francisco. Um, but the problem is, and this is again, something that uh, 
you, you won't believe when you see when as we live in in San Francisco today. But there were no tech jobs in San Francisco. In what? The, <laughs> there were no tech jobs no. in San Francisco. <laughs> I mean, in the the eighties, and I'm gonna even the early. I guess by the early nineties, but in the eighties, it was insurance. It was finance. Um, it you know it was some you know like McKesson, which is, is still there. Yeah, I mean, and so I was like, okay, well, I guess I better um, become a venture capitalist because there's a venture capital firm in San Francisco that um, is, was run by Bill Hambrecht. It was called Hambrecht and Quist, and he was a real, you know, that was the company that took Apple public and Genentech and invested in, in some of these early winners. Um, and he was very active in policy as a sort of a Democratic contributor. He was... Um, he was the one that helped Nancy Pelosi run for Congress the first time, for example. So I set my sights on getting a job there, um, and that eventually happened. And so you started there as a, a security analyst, and then tell us about how that morphed into what became eventually DBL. I know there's steps yeah. along the way. <laughs> yeah. So I was a securities analyst following analytical instrumentation. And the reason I was, was given that job is because at the time, the mass spectrometers and the gas chromatographs and all of those instruments that were made by companies like Spectrophysics and, and Hewlett Packard, they were being used to analyze stuff in Superfund sites. I mean, there was, and I was the only person that had ever heard of a Superfund site and worked, yeah, as I say, worked for the Sierra Club. So they thought, well, she'll understand all of this. And uh, so I, and again, I didn't know what these instruments were, but set, us, set about to learn about it and um, really enjoyed working with the entrepreneurs, uh, the CEOs of the company. What I really hated was um, having to, def you know, defend the company when they missed their earnings by two cents and the stock went down, you know, $3 as a result. I mean, it was the, the short termism of that job uh, was something I just could not abide. And so uh, someone at the firm said, well, if you don't like that, then you'll, you'll never be as successful as you should be. So you should move into venture capital where you're not, you have a much longer time frame. And so uh, that was kind of a hard shift to make. Not many people went from one to the other, but I had the support of Bill Hambrecht. And in fact, he wanted me to raise an environmental fund way back in 1990, which we did. It was $17 million. It was a tiny, tiny little fund. Um, and and so we started investing back then. Uh, we had some great companies, but frankly, when by that time, Bush was the... the um, President and a lot of the laws were not really go as enforced as they had been, so it wasn't the greatest time to invest. And of course, climate change was not in anyone's vocabulary at that point. Uh, but we were managed to you know, invest and get some good results. Uh, but then I went into tech and internet investing for a few years. Were you on your own when you were raising this fund? I started on my own, but uh, we, I had a partner um, from our Boston office, um, a man named Mead Wyman, who had been the CFO at Lotus, uh, and he was very interested in the environment as well. And he was an engineer, so we were partnered. And then did you feel like you knew what you were doing? Absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it, it, we were just thrown in um, and left to our own, uh, you know, creativity and hard work. I, I mean, I didn't know anything about structuring a fund. I didn't know what you know, LPs were looking for. I didn't know what was expected of me, what the returns were. So it was definitely a trial by fire. How did you figure it out? And who were the early LPs, the early investors? In that, that tiny fund, uh, we had like... Um, Gosh, it was it was random. We had some insurance companies. We had a I think we had a membrane company for filtration, and I had been a, a membrane analyst, so I, I had some contacts there. Yeah. Um, What's a membrane analyst? Well, <laughs> as part of this um, this instrumentation analyst job, I had oh, there's a whole part of instrumentation that's about separations, separating. Uh, proteins from the fermentation broth, separating ions from solution. I mean, you see them in any kind of uh, organic chemistry or inorganic lab. And it's used widely in, in environmental sciences. But what, what happened to that is that it, it, it all, all of those instruments became very, very valuable to the emerging biotechnology 
industry. So it got renamed to um, kind of biotechnology mm. tools. Gotcha. And then at what point did this this small fund, the $17 million fund, when, when did that become DBL? Oh, so that was so far, um, so f- much earlier. Okay. Um, I, I did investing for, what, about eight years. We went public, um, and I continued to invest in the tech sector, which, of course, was booming. I also, at the same time, had a job where I was the philanthropy person. I was the public affairs. I was the government affairs, because no one else would do that in, in our firm. And we had gone public, so we needed to have that function. You, so were, I, doing, you were doing that and, and being a leading the fund and, at the yeah, same time. being a venture investor uh, partner. Yeah, and my CEO really wanted me to do it because that was when TechNet was created and there was just a whole, Clinton and Gore were coming to the Valley, it seemed, every week. So there was a lot going on and we were founding members there. And, uh, so it was really fun I mean, for me to kind of get that expo- that uh, experience on both levels. Um, so what happened is uh, we were acquired by J.P. Morgan and... Uh, all of a sudden, my job was very New York centric, and that, well, I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. And meanwhile, the good old the Bay Area Council, uh, our regional business group here in uh, headquartered in the city, but active throughout the region, they they came to us. We were active members and said, "We have all these community groups that um, are complaining because." In that dot-com boom, none of the poor neighborhoods in the Bay Area were positively affected by all of these companies and all of this wealth that was created. You know, the Oaklands didn't get those companies, Richmond, East Palo Alto. And so they said, so we want... We want you to, we're going to raise some funds with with uh, professional managers, and we'd like you to do the venture fund. They were going to have a real estate fund. And um, so my boss, the CEO of H&Q, which had just been acquired, said, well, Nancy, you should do this because it combines the two things you're really passionate about, the venture investing, working with entrepreneurs, and the policy. And so I couldn't disagree. Uh, but again, didn't know what I was getting into in terms of how difficult it would be to, to raise that first fund. Uh, it was because people had, by the time we got around to it, the dot-com bust had had arrived on the scene. So everyone had lost a lot of money in venture. So they hated our asset class. And then to say you're, you're this sort of do-gooder VC that you're just not, you're not just going to make returns. You're going to transform neighborhoods or you're going to address climate change. That, <clears throat> that people just thought was ridiculous. And so it took a long time to raise that first fund. But that's how DBL started. Because that first fund, the Bay Area Equity Fund that we raised, um, gave us the, after several years, gave us the reputation and track record to then spin out and create DBL in 2008. And who who joined you in that fund um, as investors in the fund, the Bay Area Equity Fund? Uh, it was a very unusual group of investors. As I said, most people were turned off by the idea. We we were lucky that the Ford Foundation had, had been part of this project with the Bay Area Council on how to direct um, investment in low-income neighborhoods. So they they made a very small, but uh, you know, so Ford Foundation was a great name. That brought in a MacArthur and Annie Casey. So we had really top-tier foundations uh, on the one hand, uh, and then we had banks. Uh, we had a, a bunch of banks because this place-based investment approach uh, helped banks um, comply with a law, the Community Reinvestment Act, where they have to show that they're investing in low-income neighborhoods. And so we were a very creative way for them to do that. So you got all these foundations back in the initial fund. How big was that fund, the Bay Area? That was a $75 fund? million dollar fund. Wow. So going from 17 to 75, Yeah. how was that? Well, a lot had inter, uh, intervened in the meantime. I, I had done larger tech-based funds and such, so it, but it was a lot different. I mean, but it was still meager. I mean, to in San Francisco, even in, in um, 2004, to a management fee off of a $75 million fund paying for people and rent and all of that, that was still pretty meager. Yeah. Um, and at that point with this, with the Barry Equity Fund, were you doing that on your own or did you have partners I had um, we had a small team uh, uh, we had a, M&A, a guy from MA who 
was was kind of gifted to me to, to work on on this a, a young analyst um, Mark Perutz, who's still with us today, came over. He had been at Robbie at Robertson Stevens. Um, Seth Miller uh, was with us for many years. He came, he had worked at H and Q, and then my partner was uh, Mike Dorsey, who later went on to work with um, the Wesley Group. And were you able to? In the typical startup story, oftentimes you can't pay yourself. And was that part of your story or because you're in venture capital, was was everyone comfortable the whole time? We were not comfortable. I mean, I, <laughs> we I, we definitely took salary cuts to, to do this for many, many years. Um, so I, I did not. I mean, I did get a paycheck. Uh, but, for example, Mark and Seth came on and worked, I'd say for over a year for no salary, because we just, you know, we didn't have any funds until we had the fund, the the money coming in, in terms of our management fees. So people um, literally didn't get paid for a while. Uh, and then when they did get paid, it was, it was on the low end of the scale. Um, and at the time, okay, so, so your team, some people on your team aren't getting paid, you're getting paid, but much less than you could have made if you were out there on your own. Um, and meanwhile, very few people, if any, are doing what's what you were calling impact investing. Was there anyone else doing this, or were you it? No, there was no one else. I mean, there were some s- small um, kind of economic development-oriented funds, but no one was, was going for iconic, large company creation. And how did you know it would work? <laughs> uh, I, I think that... It just seemed so logical, even though everyone said it was Ill, was illogical. It just seemed to me that you know these these issues are going to become more important. The, the public sector does a good job up to a certain point, but they can't scale solutions. You need that entrepreneurial drive. You need um, you, you just need the private sector to jump in. So, I mean, we of course we never knew it would work, but it never occurred to us that we would fail for sure. Um, and from that. $75 million fund, so you succeeded at that. And then from there, you've gone on to raise larger funds. What have, would have been the other fund sizes? Yeah, so when we we spun out in, 20, in 2008 in, in January, which turned out to be a terrible time to spin out your company because September happened and all of a sudden the world is is just going is crazy and everything is very painful because of the economic crisis, including our portfolio was imploding at the time. I mean, I think any of you that have read the the Tesla early days remembers that 2008 was a year where everything went wrong and we ran out of money, it seemed, on a daily basis. Um, but that was happening throughout our portfolio. Um, so the the next fund we were going to raise in 20, 2008, we delayed to 2009. Um, and that was a $150 million fund uh, where um, we doubled from the first. And because we, re- we had had um, some exits, we were able to at least show people that there was, there was a there there. Um, and, and so that, that was how we got to do the $150 million. And then our most recent fund, a $400 million fund, we raised in 2015, which we're still investing and at each stage of those fund sizes, were there moments that you thought, especially it sounds like in 2008, were there moments you thought it just would fall apart? I think 2008 was the most difficult year for us um, because, again, people resented the money they had put into funds, that everyone was losing money. Um, all of no one would co-invest in a deal because they had so many hemorrhages in their own portfolio that they were dealing with. They couldn't even think about investing in anything new, so it was hard to get uh, follow-on rounds done. You know that was the the year that um, you know, Tesla had had just immense troubles with its product development and raising money. It was the year that Solar City had pioneered tax equity funding the year before with a investment from Morgan Stanley. And then all of a sudden, everyone lost their tax equity appetite because no one had any profits. So no one was paying any taxes. <laughs> and, and so that, you know, at the time, we wondered, well, well gosh, our, our business model just sort of evaporated. Or, uh, and so there was just so much uncertainty left and right. And um, But somehow you just 
uh, we just worked on each problem and with with the, the management teams, with our co-investors, and uh, you know, the rest is history. Um, tell us about some of the most well-known investments that you've made, like Nest and Tesla. Yeah, we missed Nest, or, or I shouldn't Nest. say we missed it. We were we never were offered it, so. Uh, would have loved to have, have done that one and uh, very enthusiastic about wh- where that space is headed. Um, so uh, Tesla, Solar City, uh, Pandora outside of the sustainability, uh, but also a power light, which was the, the first of, of all of these. We were investors in that, which was acquired by SunPower. And uh, Next Tracker, th- those are some of our more famous ones. Mm-hmm. And any thoughts on Tesla now that you want to share, given maybe not as hard as 2008, but just some of the concerns that have come up more recently? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think that Tesla is is an amazing leader that is able to paint the picture for so many people of what our what our clean energy future looks like. Now, with that goes very hard driving goals and a very competitive industry, um, the vehicle industry, and as well as uh, now the electricity industry. So, uh, and and huge technology heavy lifts. So. Uh, but there's always been a culture of, at Tesla of extremely hard, demanding work, uh, yielding results, and paving the way for what we all believe to, to be the right path for the, 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 our energy future. Uh, so I, I think that without that drive, without that vision, without being a little bit audacious in its goals, we wouldn't be making the progress at the rate that we're making it. So I think it's... It's, it's a good trait. And with these bold investments that you've made, they've been in the spaces of, of energy, of clean tech. Obviously, you're a leader in venture capital. And those sectors have traditionally been male-dominated, especially more so when you were just launching your funds in them. Mm-hmm. What was that like being a woman raising a fund at that time um, and being two women um, when your partner Cynthia joined? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those... Um, situations where you're working so hard that you you kind of don't even think back then of course now we're all we're all highly aware of of gender imbalance and and the need to correct that it was not top of mind for anyone back then so we didn't think about it Um, but certainly had a rude awakening when cynthia and i when we were raising our second fund when we went out to to fundraise um and just People noted, "Wow, we've never had two women here before. You know, do you have any men?" Or <laughs> would, would people actually ask that? Yeah, I mean, I, I they would say things which, unfortunately, I'm not I am not at liberty to repeat in a in a in, in this audience. Yeah, it was it was, um, and I was like, "Well, wow, I guess that's true, but who cares?" Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it was yeah, it was a little bit of a revel- revelation because I had you know, starting in the semiconductor industry. Um, that, that I mentioned earlier in in the 80s, you know, compared to that, you know, uh, venture was like a sorority. I mean, there, there <laughs> it, uh, the semiconductor industry was just as male and, and, and white and engineering dominated as you could possibly be. So I always felt it was every place I went after that was better. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's good. <laughs> um, I take that long view. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and based on based on your experience being a woman pioneering in fields that are traditionally male dominated, do you have advice specific for women based on that experience of yours? Well, I th- when I look back at it, I I just am so grateful for um, the men that helped me and that <clears throat> excuse me believed in me and gave me opportunity and encouraged me. So whether that's a man or a woman, you really do have to choose uh, who, who's going to help you guide your career and ideally be in a company where there are some of those people at high, in high places that will look out for your career development and, and also care about you as a long-term uh, asset to a company as opposed to just um, a, a short-term one. And reflecting back um, on your years building DBL, what were the hardest parts? Well, the hardest part was 
the rejection, the the many many uh, uh, people that said no to us when we were fundraising because you know you, you think you have this world changing idea and you're very idealistic about it and then uh, you know to hear no you know time after time is is deflating um, to say the least so that was v- very very difficult and then what was also difficult was once we got the money and we started to invest it the ridicule is too strong a word but just to to hear my colleagues in venture capital or in finance just look at me and and roll their eyes when i would tell them i just invested in an electric car company or or solar but you know some were sort of patronizing you know oh that's that's so great that's so you um (laughs) and then others were you know venture capitalists don't invest in those sectors Mm -hmm. what are you doing Mm -hmm. nancy get a grip so that that was um hard because you know you like to be these are people i'd known for when i was a kind of vanilla venture capitalist and and um you like to think that you, um, you know, that they respect what you're doing. So, how did you handle that? Like, what did you tell yourself to get past those kind of comments? Well, we would always just go back to the you know first principles that you know were this this globe is burning up. We've got to do something. Uh, electricity and transportation are big culprits, and so and the world will come around to our point of view very soon. I Did mean, you get a chance to roll your eyes at them when Power Light <laughs> and Next Tracker got acquired? I was very happy. I tried not to dish it out. <laughs> um, uh, tell us who had the greatest impact on your career. You mentioned a couple of the men who were early colleagues and maybe not mentors because I know the, that term wasn't used as much. But Yeah, I would... I would say that um, the boss that I refer to who, who told me to go for it, uh, his name was Dan Case. He was the, the CEO of, of H&Q. Um, and um, he, he had always helped me um, pursue my vision and he, by telling me that it made sense for me to, to go after that fund because I liked policy and I liked entrepreneurs. Uh, and then he didn't just say that, he convinced the, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase at the time, Bill Harrison, that they should support, you know, keep paying my salary while we tried to pull this off. And uh, so he, he matched his personal support with knowing how to, using his status in the organization to, to kind of protect me. He went to the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase and said fund Nancy to build this yeah this fund wow. yeah I mean he he developed uh, business reasons to do it mm-hmm. um, we had just been acquired by New York Bank this was a way to show San Francisco that we hadn't like the B of A merger we, we weren't all just dis- disappearing we were still committed to the region so there were business cases that he made but it was mainly just a belief in me and and what makes it even more um, special and, and but somewhat bittersweet is that he did all this when he had just been diagnosed with um, brain cancer. And so he, very sadly, he passed away like 13 months later. Wow. Did you feel particularly drawn to implement what he had told you to do because of that? I did. And um, I mean, because he, he, his family was also a personal investor in that first mm-hmm. fund. And, um, yeah, I, I felt that I better not screw this up because uh, I wanted to honor his memory. And, and in a funny twist of fate, um, his older brothers, uh, his younger brother, rather, Steve Case, who was the AOL founder, and Gene Case, um, Steve's wife, they, they've become very, um, especially Gene, very, very active in impact investing. Mm. So it all came full circle. Very cool. So you clearly have had tremendous success, especially when a lot of venture capitalists were in clean energy, got burned, failed, haven't come back. What do you think has made you so successful? Well, I think part of it is, is I mentioned that, that small fund, that $70 million fund back in the 90s. Um, they always say that venture capital is a lot of pattern recognition. And so I think that some of the difficulties we had in those early days 
that where we had some unsuccessful investments, I think I was able to recognize that syndrome a little faster than than others, just because I had lived through the misery of it. So perhaps I was able to um, avoid some some bad investments as a result of having that pattern recognition. I also think that my interest in policy, which is not really that common um, in our in the VC industry, uh, helped a lot because I was able to very clearly see that certain policies would result in certain markets being attractive and then um, jump in and try to help shape policy. Of course, you never you never win at that 100%, but you can certainly make a difference. So I think that, I mean, those are two things I think that set me apart. All right, we're going to move into our high voltage round. So these are um, short questions with relatively short answers. Uh, and the first one in the past, we've asked the question, what is your spirit animal? But we actually got some really thoughtful feedback that the concept of a spirit animal is actually really important to many in the native community. So we are updating the question to be, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? <laughs> what animal would I be and why? Well, this is, uh, we have a war between cats and dogs in, in our, our household, so I'll make some enemies either way. But <laughs> I think I'd, I'd be a cat uh, just because they're, they're so uh, sly and, and uh, independent, and yet uh, you can bond very heavily with them, and they're fun to pet. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, what have you found consistently most inspiring? Every day I'm inspired by the entrepreneurs that we work with, as I'm sure you are, uh, the the trials and tribulations that they go through on their way to um, building a company or solving a big problem in the world or both. And, and you know, we can, we all have bad days and, and certainly we can feel sorry for ourselves on certain bad days, but really to be an entrepreneur out there uh, doing slugging away every single day against very significant odds, um, that that's... Uh, it's really an honor to, to be around that, and, and, then, and it's super inspiring. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? <laughs> what, would it, what would I be if I weren't a venture capitalist? Would you run for office, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to let you do that as, as your next career. Um, I, I think I would do something completely different, like open a restaurant or um, just something that sort of was more domestic. To whom do you attribute your success? Well, it's, it's really our success. You know, my my partners, my all the t- people I've been mentioning. Uh, obviously, this has been a team effort from from day one. Um, and of course, I mean, this is just such a cliche, but um, my family that's been through all of the the bad times and the good times, and and kept me from, you know, freaking out on a, a daily basis. Uh, my husband, my kids, my, my, my sisters. And so I, I think it's, it's just, it, it's common, commonly said, but it really is true that you need that, that anchor and, you know, whether it's friends or, or, or family or people that are related to you, because that's, that's really where, uh, in those really low moments that you can rely on, on, on getting strength. Um, Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? Bad management. You're welcome to elaborate if you want to. You don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I always say I'd rather have an A-plus management team and a B-plus technology than the reverse because the technology always changes and it's never going to be good enough uh, and it's you're constantly improving it. Uh, so you're, you have to be nimble there, but you can only do that if you have really good managers that understand how to, how to navigate like that mm-hmm. and, and develop teams that will deliver. Well said. Success is? Success is um, uh, bringing clean, sustainable, cheap, distributed energy to the world and creating quality jobs, uh, economies around that, and uh, preventing the the ravages of of climate change. My biggest regret is? 
My biggest regret is that I didn't, it's not a big regret, but I regret that I worried so much about spinning out of JP Morgan to create my own firm. And I should have done it earlier and, and embraced it. What was scary about spinning it off? And did you, was that your choice or someone else's? It was not my idea to begin with. It was uh, Jamie Dimon, the, who was then the now, of course, the CEO of, of, of J.P. Morgan. He wanted to spin out all of the funds in, in the bank for kind of de-risking the bank. So uh, it was initially not my idea. I was petrified. I was like, I, didn't, I don't want my own company. I, I like working with entrepreneurs, but I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur. So I pushed back for, I'd say, about a year. And then it was inevitable. And as soon as we did it, which is why I, I say it's one of my regrets, it was like, wow, we should have done this a long time ago. Do you think you would have done it if it had been your choice eventually? I probably would not have become an entrepreneur. <laughs> I know. Uh, because, Thank you, Jamie Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, because I, you know, I worked at H&Q and then when it was merged, I worked there for like 23 years. I mean, I was just not the 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 type of person that you would point to as leaving a job after 20 years, 23 years to, to start your own company. So, I mean, I, I think statistically that that doesn't really fly. Do you see yourself as an entrepreneur now? I, I sure do. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's something uh, unique about just having to be uh, on top of all manner of both uh, sort of uh, mundane and and glorious details. <laughs> <laughs> glorious details. Um, two more uh, finishing the sentences. I'm most proud of. I'm most proud of the role that our firm has played in in ushering in um, a new uh, transportation and energy economy that's based on clean, renewable, distributed energy. And lastly, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? To build a successful startup, you, you just have to assume that you, um, you're wrong, you're going to be wrong, and, and not care, and keep working at it, and working extremely hard, and that everything will take twice as long, and, and that um, it's just grit and determination and vision. Great. Uh, please join me in a round of applause for Nancy Fund. Thanks again to Nancy Fund and to Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch for that great interview. If you like the series and maybe you want to attend a live one at the Powerhouse headquarters in Oakland, go to powerhouse.solar slash events. That's powerhouse.solar slash events. We've also got a link in the show notes that you can follow to find out more. Thanks so much to Powerhouse for being a great partner on this. Um, they're fantastic. And if you're a startup looking for working space, money, or a network, Go visit them in Oakland. Um, we're going to be off on the week of the 12th. I'm going to be in Mexico at our solar summit, but we'll be back after that with a great interview with Varun Sivaram about the future of solar and his fantastic new book. Shale is going to sit down with him and uh, we'll catch you when that gets released. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been an edition of What It Takes from Powerhouse and Green Tech Media.